book to kind of schedule the year around. So, so as, as pastors, what we do is we come up with, with teaching series because it helps us. It helps us to do, to do a better job. And out of nowhere, I decided, well, out of somewhere, but out of nowhere at the time, I thought, well, I'll do the book of Romans. It's a, it's a nice long book. It'll give us months worth of sermons. It is the Bible, so it's okay. It's inspired. You know, and I was just, you know, and I had thought of a couple of, like, key verses that I wanted to address. But before I could even get to those specific Bible verses, um, we have come across all sorts of really heavy, heavy, and thick theology. The first six chapters in the book of Romans has been talking about how you, as a believer, become saved. And I know that for the last ten weeks now, okay, so we are on week number ten, we have been talking about justification, being saved by God's grace through the faith that we have. And from my understanding, um, and, and some of the elders, but from my understanding, there have been some, some of our brothers and sisters here who have wrestled with this message. Um, and, and the wrestling issue has become, if we are saved by grace, does that mean that we can do whatever we want? If we're saved by God's grace, then can we live whatever life we want and do whatever and partake in any number of sins and still get in? Does that mean that people who have been saved but have backslidden, are they in? Are people forgiven who have done these sins that I would never do? And so the question has become this phrase, are you preaching once saved, always saved? And my answer to this is very simply, I'm just trying to preach what Romans is saying. I come up here before you with nervousness because there's a part of me that that wants to just say yeah yeah forget it let's just not preach these verses let's go on to the next ones to talk about the sacrifice we must live in let's get to the verses that requires what God is calling us to do but before we can live any kind of Christian life we have to get the basic understanding of how salvation happens and whose gift it is to give I'm addressing this because I was, <clears throat> I was encouraged by the elders to make sure that you understand that as we're going through the book of Romans, and if you are one of the ones who is struggling with all of this grace, 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 what about all of the laws that they told us I had to keep? What about all of the rules that my parents and my pastors taught me? What about all of the rules in the Old Testament? Grace seems too easy it seems too easy, and everybody just gets to get in. And my answer to that is, we're just trying to get through the book of Romans. We'll get to the part that Paul says that you must live your life as a living sacrifice to Christ. We'll get there. But I'm just warning you that before we get there, there is more grace coming. There will be other texts in the scripture that are going to challenge you. When I started this, and I'll, and I'll just give you guys some feedback. When I, when I started as a pastor and I was 24 years old, I got to preach every single week. And most weeks I preached twice because I pastored two small churches. So I would preach in one at 9.30, I would drive to the next one and preach the second sermon. For almost four years, I did that every single week. As a young 24-year-old, and maybe I don't think Brett's like this, but as a young 24-year-old pastor, I'm finally given the podium I had an agenda to preach justice. I had an agenda to preach what I thought the Bible was saying, in a sense. I mean, I was still biblical, but I had things that I wanted to get across. But when a pastor preaches his agenda, then there's a problem. 
So God worked with me slowly and patiently. But over the last, I don't know, that, that only lasted for a little bit, but I've just been trying to preach what I see Scripture saying. So when I came to the book of Romans, I just thought easy, easy way to kind of just, you know, structure six months worth of sermons. It helps the worship coordinators. It helps people who pick the songs. It helps Carol who does the PowerPoints. I mean, it helps everyone. It gives us a structure. It teaches us how to read the Bible from beginning to end of a book. What I wasn't expecting it to be was just this extremely deep and heavy theology that matters for how you live your life. See, the reason Paul spends six chapters talking about grace is because he lived in a world where people didn't want grace. He lived in a world where people said, we have been following these laws for thousands of years, and now you're saying that these other people that don't have the law that they get to get in too? And so for this first century people, they were saying, this just isn't fair, Paul. This isn't fair. We have Abraham. We have Moses. We have David. We have been following laws and laws so that we could show that we are holy, so that we can show God that we are in and that we love him. And now you're saying that these Gentiles who practice all sorts of other stuff, that they get to get in too? And Paul says, kind of. I'm saying all of this because today we're going to look at the background of justification and we're going to really get a little bit deeper into what Paul's theology is getting into. Now, I'll give this caveat. If you're wrestling with this, it doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make you bad. It doesn't make me bad. It doesn't make me wrong. We're a family. And as a family, we want to talk and we want to get th through this. So if you're struggling with something I've said or something that we've preached, and it's just like, you know, it's not really sitting well, and you want to understand it better, I invite you to set up a time to speak with myself and with our head elder, Kurt Mountain, and we will be more than glad to kind of sit with you, study together, look at what's going on. But remember, Romans has 16 chapters. I think it's 16 chapters. There's a lot to come. And we're just looking at it verse by verse to get a big, big, clear picture of what Paul is trying to get across. So with that said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you've given us the grace of your word. And that through your word, we can be informed about who you are. That we can be informed about your love and your mercy. And so my prayer now this morning is that as we finish off chapter 5 of Romans, that you would give us the patient ear that we need that you would give us your spirit to help us understand, and that it would be you, Lord, who speaks through me, not myself. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Are we good? That wasn't awkward. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, pause. The one man that sin came into the world through is who? Adam. So remember, for Paul, the entire Old Testament is, his under, is how he understands the world. That's the lens through which he sees the world. So he's saying, sin came into the world through one man. Now, some people might argue, well, no, it was the devil. Well, yeah, of course, the devil's behind sin. But the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that it was Adam and Eve that both of them ate of the tree that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what we find here is that it was Adam and Eve who, who were the first sort of, sort of people who sinned in this world. Now, we can, you know, it's easy for us to blame them for that, but the truth is that it could have been anybody. It could have been, I don't know, it could have been, you know, Steve and Mary, or John and Jane, or David and, you know, Sally, or whoever. 
It doesn't matter who were the first people. The fact is that had it been anybody else, they probably would have sinned anyway. If it had been me in the garden, I probably would have done the same. And it's not because we're all bad. It's just because we're easily influenced by the devil. The devil has this funny way of luring us into believing that some things are okay or luring us into believing that if we do things this way, our life will be better. And so Paul says, as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin came into the world through Adam, and through sin, death enters the world, and death spread to all because all have sinned. Remember, Paul is talking to a group of religious people who had been following or trying to, not successfully, follow all the laws of the Old Testament. And so what he is saying is, look, all of us have sinned. Whether you're Jewish or you're Gentile, whether you're religious or non-religious, it doesn't matter. You have all sinned. Because Paul is making the point that we all, every single one of us, whether we are religious or not, whether you believe in God or not, we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all in need of forgiveness. One person isn't better than the other. We just have different sins. And the Bible teaches us that if, if you have sinned once, you have broken all of the laws and all of the commandments. And Paul goes on. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. So remember, Moses is the one who brings the law, but before Moses in the Bible, if you read your Bible, you will see that all of Genesis comes before Moses actually comes onto the scene. And there are families upon families and stories of biblical characters, and there was no law there yet. And he is saying, he goes, indeed, the, the sin was in the world, obviously, before there was law. But sin is not reckoned where there is no law. So if there is no law, you can't really break the law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those sins who were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. Okay, that's like all theology. That's like heavy. That's the kind of stuff we, our eyes glaze over because we don't really know. But all he is saying is this, even though there was no law in the book of Genesis, there was still sin. Adam and Eve commit the first sin, and there is sin, and the reason we know that there is sin is because there is death and there is decay. And it says that, that the death exercised dominion over Adam, through, between Adam and Moses, even for those who didn't really sin the way Adam sinned. So all sins lead to death. And the Bible says that Adam was a type of one who was to come, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. So we're talking about sin and death. But the free gift is not like the trespass or the sin. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Five times in these ten verses, Paul uses the phrase free gift. Free gift. How much does free cost? How much... Yeah, how much does free cost? When you guys give me this pastor appreciation gift, and Bob said it's money, so I appreciate that. <laughs> he said that's lots of money with like five zeros. How long will you guys give me to pay it back? A week. 
No, but of course you're not asking me to pay it back. You just want me to work a certain amount of hours, right? You're not asking me to pay it back, but you want to make sure that I'm giving my tithe and offering, right? You don't really want me to pay it back, but if I'm not here three days a week, then there's a problem. I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. None of you have ever said those things, okay? The point I'm trying to make is that when you give me that gift, you require nothing in return. You, out of the goodness of your heart, are just giving because you are good, loving people. And none of you would ever take a dollar back from what I gave you because you would be offended if I tried. Paul says the free gift, it's not, it's not like the trespass. But here's what he's saying. He goes, you've done nothing to earn this free gift. The trespass, the death that follows your sin, you did it. You're guilty. You deserve to die. He says, but the free gift, you did nothing to deserve it. There is um, one quote that I heard. I don't know who said it, but it says this. The only thing that you bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wish I could take credit for that. The one thing that you bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Remember, I am not saying do whatever you want. That, that would be to misunderstand the message of the gospel. We know that if we have truly been saved, our lives, we will live our lives in such a way that will bring honor and glory to God. And you're not bringing honor and glory to God by remaining in sin. Okay, that's, so when I say live a life that brings honor and glory to God, perhaps a better way of saying it is try to live a life free of sin. Try to live a life where you don't go towards these destructive habits. Don't let those negative feelings and emotions get the best of you. Don't let envy and malice and pride get the best of you. Don't let your hate of someone else get the best of you. Do what would honor God always and in every moment. To live a life where you've accepted the free gift of grace is A, to give grace to others, to everyone, especially those people you don't really like. But it's also to live in such a way that when people see you, they will say, that is a Christian person. I heard a story this week about a person who, who told me that, um, that she doesn't share her faith. She says, it's, it's, it's really none of anyone's business. Like, I'm not going to go shove Jesus down people's throats. And she was telling me that this person has been going through a lot in the last, I would say, year. And she keeps quiet. She does her work. She does her thing. And, and one of her coworkers came to her. And she says, I don't know what God you believe in, but that's the God I want to be a part of. Now, this person says, I don't believe in God. I don't even know if God exists. But I've been doing research about what you believe, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. A person who doesn't believe in God asks a Christian if she can pray for that Christian. And if I remember the prayer correctly, this person, this unbeliever, this atheist is praying to a God she doesn't believe in, saying, God, if you are there, be with this person. That means to live a life that honors and gives glory to God. No one's ever done that for me. No one has ever done that for me. And I'm a pastor. I should be the one they're doing that for. But this person is trying to live a life that honors and values God so much because she has understood the message of grace that she wants other people to see the goodness of God just by how she treats them. 
So when Paul says the free gift, it's not, you don't deserve the free gift, but it's yours. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, so if, if all of us have become a part of sin because of Adam and Eve, which really is, would have just been any human being, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And he goes on. And the free gift, again, you see this. When Bible writers do this, they're trying to get a point across. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass or sin, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the, there it is again, the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through who? Through who do you exercise dominion? Through yourself? Through your good works? Through your ability to do good? Through who? To, through Christ. Here's the kick, or the kicker, or whatever the word is. Even the work of sanctification, when we talk about sanctification, that's the process of becoming more like Christ, of being purified, of being made with, you know, less and less sin in your life. Even that isn't your work. It is the work of God in your life getting rid of sin. Do you understand? You can't even be proud of getting rid of sin in your life because it really wasn't you. It was God. This, this battle that is going on in this world isn't between us and Satan or us and sin. This battle is between God and Satan for you. But the Bible tells us that if God is in you, who can be against you? If God is ultimately powerful and we truly believe that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, full of grace and full of love, the devil does not stand the chance. The one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through all. Much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, and you will exercise dominion through life, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. If sin... If God's grace, how should I put this? I had this written down in my book. <laughs> there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. If there isn't more grace in God than there is sin in you, then sin wins. And if sin wins, then the devil wins. And if the devil wins, then we shouldn't come back to church again. Because what the Bible tells us isn't true. If sin wins, then God's a liar. And I don't think that's true. He says, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, one man's act, that's Jesus' act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all. Now, we could spend hours upon hours upon hours reading and arguing what the last word on this slide says, all. 
Because we know that sin, when it enters the world, it affects every single human individual in, in existence ever. Everyone dies because all have sinned. He says, but God's justification brings justification and life for all. Now, I'm not saying everyone gets into heaven. It's not my call. It's God's call. I'm just saying that there have been theological battles over one word. Who gets in? Who gets in? I think the wrong quest, wrong question. The right question to ask is, who is the giver? And to whom does he give the gift of grace? For just as by the one man's disobedience, so just as Adam ate of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the many were made sinners, but through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Again, what, did you, what part did you play in this? You played the first part, the disobedience. Me too, by the way, every day. But law came in where the res- but law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. So with law, we only became aware of all of our sins. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If sin wins, then the devil wins. And if the devil wins, then there's no hope. But the Bible time and time again has taught us that in the end, God wins. The book of Revelation is all about how God wins in the end how he is more powerful than even the best the devil has to throw at him. It's not even a battle. So this is kind of thick, so let me give you a real day kind of illustration. I don't have a picture of this. A couple of nights ago, there was an event on television. Some of you may or may not have seen it. But it was the Denver Broncos, of course, playing a much less... <laughs> I know, they lost in the Super Bowl badly. I know, I know. Seahawks aren't getting there this year, so it's fine. Anyway, it wasn't a battle. It was, <laughs> it was one-sided. The Broncos were never going to lose because they are superior. <laughs> Do we have Charger fans in here? I'm trying to think. Sorry, no offense, no offense. It just popped. See, this is why you have to have a manuscript. You don't make mistakes. But God wins. This is why we gather here on Saturdays. This is why we become members of this church, because we worship and we celebrate the fact that God wins. And when God wins, we win because he lets us into his eternal kingdom. God is not going to lose to Satan. It's not even a close—it's not even a battle. It's just a delusion that the devil has that he somehow is going to win. He's all— ready lost when jesus dies on the cross that is when the battle is won because the devil thinks why well, i get all these people to die but god conquers death oh my goodness i totally for oh my gosh okay i totally forgot let's finish where sin increased grace abounded all the more again again some of you might think well so you're saying sin as much as you want because grace abounds, so even every time you consciously sin, you're saying it's okay because grace abounds. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when you do sin, the grace of God abounds even more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's the last one. So we come to the end of chapter 5. 
with the understanding that where sin is present in your life, the grace of God is even more present. And that's why we're doing communion today. We, we observe communion as a reminder that the death of Jesus on the cross was eternally costly to God. God gives his most valued, I guess possession is a wrong word, but the person that God loves the most, he gives to die on your behalf, even though on your best day, you don't deserve it. Because God loves you so much that God will stop at nothing to spend eternity with you. When Jesus was on the cross, I, you know what, I haven't experienced very much physical pain in my life. Maybe a little bit, I guess. But if the painful cross, the nails in the hands of Jesus in his feet, the whips that he maintained, the, the, the crown of thorns, this excruciating pain, if that didn't stop Jesus from loving you, your sin is not going to stop Jesus from loving you. And so God is about wanting to get you to this relationship with him so that you could spend eternity with God. This isn't saying go and do whatever you want. Please understand that's not what we're saying. Read the Gospel of Matthew and you will see how hard it is to be a Christian. What Jesus demands of you is much more than the Ten Commandments. But he does it because he knows that if you follow the way of Jesus, you will live the most abundant life. Not for salvation, but for the life that we live here on this earth. I'm going to close this, the, the, the sermon with this. I, look, it's 15 till 12. We tried to make the service short so that I could preach this message. But at this moment, we are going to begin the, our, our, our kind of exercise of observing communion. If you're our guest, here's what's going to happen. There are three rooms in this, uh, three rooms in our church. One for men, one for women, and one for families. And what we do is that the story tells us in the book of, uh, is it Luke? The foot washing's in Luke, I think. Um, that Jesus gets down and washes the feet of his disciples as a way of showing them that if you are going to truly be a leader in this world, you must actually be one who serves others. So the only truly way to follow in the way of Jesus isn't to serve yourself or expect others to serve you or for, for you to get your way, but to truly be a follower of Jesus it's for you to serve others and do for them as you would have them do unto you. And so when we do this foot washing, it's, uh, it's with the understanding that we are being reminded that to be followers of Jesus is to die to our selfish ambition, to die to our way of wanting to do things, and of being present and serving those who are in need, even our brothers and sisters. So we're going to dismiss you for that, and we just ask that when you're done with that to come back quickly so that we can um, finish our service off with taking the bread um, and the juice that reminds us of the body and the blood of Christ that was broken for us.